It's Spain's most arid region and home to Europe's only desert. Continuously raided by Berber pirates over the centuries, home to gold mining and spaghetti western filming locations too. It also has the largest Moorish citadel in all of Spain and much of its landscape is covered by the Mar de Plástico, the sea of plastic, vast expanses of greenhouses producing millions of tonnes of fruit and vegetables for export across Europe, an industry that also hides a dark reality for thousands of immigrants. Of course, we're talking about Almería. So in this episode, I'll be whisking us down to the southeast of Spain. We'll have a cruise through the Tabernas Desert. I'll take you down to some of the wild beaches of Cabo de Gata. I'll also be talking you through some of the highlights of the city of Almeria. And later in the episode, I'll be wandering the narrow streets of the beautiful hilltop village of Mojaca. Along the way, of course, I'll be exploring Almeria's rich and turbulent history and offering you guys some of my thoughts, observations and recommendations. And at the end of the episode, I'll be talking about the Mar de Plástico, these huge, huge valleys of plastic greenhouses which produce millions of tonnes of fresh produce every year, which gets exported across Europe. Very striking to see when you're driving around the province of Almeria, these huge valleys of white plastic greenhouses which hide quite a dark side, very poor working conditions for those who harvest the fruit and vegetables. So that's all coming up in the hour ahead on When in Spain. Come and join me for some Spain armchair travel. Vamos! A warm welcome to the When in Spain podcast. I'm your host, Paul Birch. Thank you for joining me wherever you're listening from. If you're new to the podcast, an especially big warm welcome to you. The When in Spain podcast aims to scratch beneath the surface of this extraordinary country, which I am lucky enough to call home. So if you're new to the show and you're wondering what it's all about, each episode we look at culture, lifestyle, armchair travel, just like this episode, history, food and drink, practical advice for anybody thinking to come and live and work here in Spain. Along the way, my personal insights, and we also have some fantastic guests joining us as well. So just before we scoot off around Almeria, I would just like to say that this podcast is brought to you by the power of fantastic patrons who support the show by signing up to make small donations each month via the crowdfunding platform Patreon. If you too enjoy this podcast and would like to show a little bit of support, then you can too become a patron by signing up at patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. And one last thing, just before we get into the episode, if you'd like to give your imagination a helping hand and you'd like to see some uh, photos that I took during our trip around Almeria, then do go and follow When in Spain on Instagram. You'll see lots of photography on there um, from all around Spain, actually, and lots of photography relating to previous episodes. The handle you need is at When in Spain one. Okay, so to start off with, let's look at uh, a little bit of background history to Almeria and the province of Almeria. I will talk in a bit more detail specifically about the city of Almeria and the history of the city of Almeria a little bit later in the podcast. Almeria was founded by Caliph Abd al-Rahman III, uh, who founded the city of Almeria in 955. Now, I've always been intrigued about the name of Almeria uh, and where it uh, comes from. And there are several theories, actually, but the best known is the one referring to the watchtower located at the highest point of the hill of the Alcazaba, which is the Moorish citadel or fortress. And the watchtower was called Al Mariat Bayana, giving the Moors a strategic surveillance point up there on the hill behind what is now the city of Almeria. And the name supposedly meant mirror of the sea. Now this term apparently referred to the installation of a set of mirrors in the tower with which they communicated with other towers up and down the coast to warn of possible future attacks from the sea. 
However, that name is also disputed, and rather than meaning mirror of the sea,、uh, it could quite simply be translated as the watchtower. So there you have it. Okay, so on our trip down there, we went by car and we cruised through the Tabernas Desert. Now, the Tabernas Desert is something that I was very keen to at least see. Now, we didn't stop off and walk around; it was incredibly hot. And、uh, while we had a timetable to keep, we had to get to our accommodation、uh, down in Cabo de Gata. But the Tabernas Desert is an incredibly spectacular landscape. It、uh, reminds me of, you know, New Mexico, Arizona. It's this very barren desert landscape. With these kind of badlands and these wind eroded rocks and stones, the Tabernas Desert begins around 30 kilometers north of Almeria, between the Filabres and Alhamilla mountain ranges, and the area, which、uh, is actually strictly speaking only a semi-desert, but hey, let's call it a desert,、um, extends over 280 square kilometers. The sun shines for more than 3,000 hours. A year there, and、uh, well, of course, rainfall in the Tabernas Desert is pretty sparse. I think with something like 200 millimeters per year. As I said, we sliced through the Tabernas Desert on the A92 autopista, which goes right through the middle of the desert. So out of the windows, you get some spectacular views. To cross the desert probably takes about I don't know 20, 30 minutes, I guess. And we were heading、uh, down towards the city of Almeria. If you're driving. Driving to Almeria City or the Cabo de Gata Peninsula coast from either northern or central Spain, then you're bound to drive through the desert on the A92、uh, autopista. It's the main route down towards that part of、uh, Almeria's coastline. It's also notable and important to mention filming locations in the Tabernas Desert. Now, I'm sure many of you probably already know this, but just in case, I think the Tabernas Desert must have made quite an impression on the film director Sergio Leone、uh, when he arrived in Almeria in 1964, because he decided to shoot many of his Clint Eastwood movies there, or the spaghetti western genre, I guess we could say. So westerns such as A Fistful of Dollars, For a Few Dollars. More the good, the bad, and the ugly、uh, were all actually filmed in Spain's Almeria's Tabernas Desert, and not in Arizona or the United States. And the curious thing about it is that around the Tabernas Desert, you have these little villages, many of which were purpose-built. They were little western sets. Which you can still visit today. So the kind of one or two street with the wooden buildings and the balconies and the saloons, the kind of、uh, wild west themed. And there are a couple of these in the Tabernas Desert, which were originally used for those films, but are still open today, really as tourist attractions. So there's one called Studios Fort Bravo. There's Oasis Theme Park, and there's one called Western Leone. Now I mentioned、uh, spaghetti westerns.、Uh, And the films of Sergio Leone and Clint Eastwood, but there are actually other films that were filmed around、uh, the Tabernas Desert as well, including Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and、uh, Lawrence of Arabia, which I talk about a little bit later in the episode when you'll hear me coming to you from the town of Carboneras, where I stumbled across a statue of Lawrence of Arabia. So I'm coming to you from the town of Carboneras. And I'm sitting in a rather quiet Plaza del Castillo, Castle Square, and of course, takes its name from the castle, which is directly in front of me. Not much of a castle, I have to say. It's about a 15-meter-tall stone wall with a small archway, one round turret. On the left-hand side, as I look at it, this beautiful marble square. I'll talk about the castle in a second. On the other side of the square is the building, which says above the white wooden, ornately carved doors, Ayuntamiento, and it's this beautiful pink facade, very pale pink facade, and all of the cornices on the Ayuntamiento are this lovely pale yellow colour, very typical in Andalusia. Love it. A little clock. So、it's quarter past seven in the evening. We've got a few teenagers emerging into the square, hanging out together, all looking at their phones, <laughs> of course. So Cabaneras is one of the larger beaches on the coast of the Cabo de Gata. 
It's about 67 kilometers uh, away from the uh, province's capital, Almeria, and it's become something of a top-notch tourism hub, I suppose. Uh, it's a decent-sized town with plenty of bars and restaurants. And along the beach, uh, towards the end of the beach, you'll find uh, big white hotel complexes set into the mountains, which are the backdrop to the town. These very browny-green, uh, arid mountains. I mean, this is, this is the common theme of Almeria. It is arid, and the mountains are arid. They're not lush and verdant, although apparently they once were. That goes back to the name of the town, Carboneras. It was originally a small fishing village, and on those very mountainsides that I just mentioned, there was an abundance of wood. In fact, they were once, and it's hard to believe today, uh, lush forests of holm oak and other Mediterranean trees. These trees were eventually cut down during the 16th century um, because of the coal industry, because of mining. And this whole part of Almeria is rich in mining history. So the name Carboneras takes its name from the Spanish word carbon, meaning coal. And the town was founded partly because of the coal industry. Some also say because of the coal industry, there were an abundance of coal ovens built around the area. And these were later sold inland on the peninsula. So let's get back to the castle that I'm looking at now. Incidentally, you can walk in. I might see if I can try and walk in. The Castillo de San Andres is its name. And the town of Carboneras served as a defensive purpose as well. Not only coal, but defensive purposes. In 1559, King Philip II granted control over the municipality to the Marquis of Carpio. And at that time, the coast of Andalusia, and I'll touch upon this several more times in the podcast for sure, in the 16th century, the coast of Andalusia, particularly the isolated area around Almeria, was the preferred gateway of the Berber pirates who came to raid this area area, particularly because of the mining that was going on here. They knew that there were valuable metals and natural resources to be had. So the area experienced a prolonged period of instability and the Marquis of Carpio built the Castillo de San Andres to defend the region against not only pirates, but also a Moorish uprising. So this box-like stone castle in the heart of the town originally had three towers at each corner. There are only two that are preserved now. I can see one of them. I wouldn't even call it a tower, really. Now you can wander in for free, and it's actually a location now where they hold festivals, music concerts, open air, film screenings. Just behind the castle, as I saw earlier, is a statue of Lawrence of Arabia. And I'm going to have a wander around, look at the statue in a minute and tell you about what the significance of Lawrence of Arabia is here in Carboneras. But just before I do that, let's look at a bit of the uh, wider history of the area around Carboneras and this part of Cabo de Gata. This isolated position made contraband absolutely rife. A situation was, was taken full advantage of by the Moors to establish connections with Africa, especially during the uprising, which I mentioned, the Moorish uprising of 1568. It was an important port during this uprising for the entry of soldiers and arms. And it's known that during the Nazari era, the occupation of the coast was carried out through the establishment of towers and observation posts along the shore. And this vigilance continued until after the conquest of the Catholic monarchs. The settlement of the village never really took shape properly at that time because of the isolation of the stone and, of course, this inherent danger of Berber pirates. So then a better defence was planned by means of the establishment of permanent troops and the construction of a castle. And although the project was approved by Philip II, Felipe II, in 1583, it wasn't actually carried out until 1621. And the distribution of the land to the soldiers, the creation of a tuna fishery and the improved safety of the zone attracted the population and a permanent village eventually sprang up around St Andrew's Castle, where I am now, which was the name given to the castle. So since the beginning of the 18th century, its population considerably increased because of the growing safety along this part of the Spanish coast. In 1776, another castle 
castle called Mesa Roldan was commissioned to be built and this increased the security of the area and as a consequence it prospered economically. Its economy was based on traditional agriculture, fishing and the production of esparto. Esparto, um, I always have problems uh, translating this word. The uh, espadril shoes, slip-on summery shoes that you may know are made from esparto so it's a kind of like a wicker or a raffia material that's what esparto is and that was cultivated widely in this area and exported all over the rest of the peninsula so let's go and have a look in the uh, castle i'm going to wander through the door so it's a monday evening and today in this part of spain it's actually a, a holiday can't remember the name. You will quite often find this in Spain. You go just to the next uh, comarca and they have a little holiday at uh, 20 kilometers away. They don't have, but anyway, here we go. So I'm just walking in. They've got a little sign on the door talking about the uh, Rehabilitación del Castillo de San Andrés. Let's see if we can walk in. Hola, buenas. So I've walked in. Um, it's just a very basic stone courtyard. The floor of the courtyard is inlaid with big cobblestones and you can see the remains of what would have been, I suppose, rooms inside the castle, chambers, but now they're only uh, walls of, uh, I don't know, half a metre tall. But yeah, they have quite done quite a sympathetic renovation. There are parts of the courtyard which are, have, they've been built into the old stone walls, kind of glass, modern glass panels and modern glass windows. It's not the most impressive castle, but it's a very interesting history behind it, at least. OK, so I've just walked inside. No one here. <laughs> no other visitors. And it's like a photographic exhibition called Carbo Pesca. And surrounded me are all these faces of 60, 70-year-old men and women. I don't know who they are. Ah, it says on a poster here, Soy de la Mar. I am from the sea. Okay, so it's talking about the patrimony of uh, the town's fishermen and fisherwomen and wives of fishermen. Stories of the local fishing tradition. Big, tall, curved, vaulted ceilings with little slit windows. Um, but yeah, it's just basically been turned into a large exhibition space. video playing okay well i'm going to go back out into the courtyard a little palm tree peeking over one of the walls it's fronds swaying gently in the breeze it's much cooler up here and it's much much more breezy up here than down on other parts of the coast that we've been to so this patio is called the patio de armas the weapon patio so back out into the uh, castle square beautiful marble square what I find in Andalusia that uh, lots of the towns compared to central and northern Spain have their squares and their pavements and their streets paved in thick marble and marble blocks we've got this beautiful beige and pink marble uh, all around the square and uh, surrounded by palms flag gently bristling in the breeze anyway I want to walk around the corner and go and find the statue of Lawrence of Arabia and see what that's all about okay so I found the statue of Lawrence of Arabia in uh, looks like dark bronze a couple of inches taller than I am. It says, El Pueblo de Carboneras a la Película Lawrence de Arabia y las personas que la hicieron posible en 1962. This was erected in 2013, I think on the 50th anniversary of the film, would it have been? Yes. So the statue is located in a little tiled, a little tiled balcony square. On one side, we've got a school of music. I can hear some drums being played coming out of the open door there. And on the other side, uh, an architect's studio and a pharmacy. The uh, statue 
was erected on the 50th anniversary of the film, uh, which was made in 1962. When we travelled through the uh, Tabernas Desert on our way here, that desert was a location of many, I guess what you might call spaghetti westerns. And Lawrence of Arabia, according to this uh, plaque that I'm reading now, says one of the most acclaimed movies of all ages is again and again chosen among the 10 most important films in cinema history. Why Carbonaras? <laughs> That's what I want to know. It says from February until June 1962, this film team lived, ah, so the film team lived in Carbonaras and brought the magic of cinema and extra incomes to humble and hard-working locals, it says here. Carboneras was, and still is, a paradise to the point that some of its prominent members, such as Barbara Beale and Eddie Fowley, decided to remain here and live forever among us. <laughs> it's a little bit cheesy, but there we go. The landscapes of Almeria are together with the Jordanian desert, the protagonists of this legendary film. Amoladeras Dunes, the plains of Níjar and the capital city itself of Almería were scenarios for important scenes. Generation after generation, families recall it so deeply that Carboneras inhabitants took to the streets in December 2012 to welcome back and hail Omar Sharif, Sherif Ali, and the sculpture is by Carmen Mudarra. So there we go. A little bit tenuous, but I do as well. <laughs> These are the kind of bits of history that I actually love um, about Spanish towns and villages. The lovely thing about this balcony is right behind the statue, there must be dozens and dozens of mature palm trees. 50 metres from where I'm standing is the sea and the beach. And the beach here in Carboneras is a lovely, vast, wide beach. Uh, in contrast to many of the beaches around uh, the Cabo de Gata area, actually many of them are quite, uh, quite a lot smaller, uh, enclosed on three sides, more like big, big coves or callas much more rugged and wild and uh, a fair bit smaller. Unfortunately, though, the view out to see on, on one side, uh, as the bay curves round, is kind of spoilt by uh, big cranes and the chimney of a cement factory. There's a big cement factory just across the bay there, uh, which is one of the uh, area's most important industries, in fact, nowadays. Um, kind of spoils the view a bit, but there you go. If you look the other way... It's a, it's a very pretty uh, promenade, tree-lined promenade, full of little uh, houses, I guess what would have been fishermen's houses, which are now, I think, private residences or summer homes of Spaniards and locals who come here and walking along the promenade. We, uh, have their, they have their doors wide open onto the beachside promenade, and you're just looking straight into their lounges or living rooms. They've got the television on, they're there relaxing. And I thought, wow, well, lucky to have such a wonderful beachside property. So as whatever rehearsal carries on in the background at the uh, Escuela de Musica, sounds like they're practicing old crooner classics, I'm going to wander down to the park that I just mentioned, towards the sea. And I want to talk about a beautiful little village that we stopped off at on the way here to Carboneras called Níjar. One thing I will say about Carboneras is that if you want a beach in this part of Murcia, Cabo de Gata, other than uh, maybe Roquetas de Mar and uh, Almeria City itself, which is obviously a beach city, Carboneras offers uh, lots of facilities. It is a decent-sized town with plenty of bars and restaurants and little chiringuitos along the side of the beach. It's, a, as I said, a very wide, expansive beach. Children's parks, all the facilities, and, of course, hotels, as I mentioned as well, all the, all the facilities that you could want for a kind of beach holiday destination. It's important to point out that a lot of the more wild, smaller beaches along Cabo de Gata don't have many facilities. Many of them have absolutely nothing at all. And they're a little bit more tricky to, to get to. You certainly need a car to get to them. Um, but you might be faced with quite long walks uh, down hillsides or through fields to get to the beaches. And when you get to these small beaches, you'll find that there is a beach and the sea and nothing else. So I've walked down to the park to a little fountain pond. It's quite modern, but curiously in the middle, it's got these huge cactuses, cacti. They must be 10 metres tall. And you see a lot of cactuses 
in this part of Spain. I've got to say that the landscape of Almería, from what I've seen so far, it's like the uh, Arizona or New Mexico of Spain. If you like very kind of barren, arid, dramatic landscapes, then, uh, then Almería is, is your place. It's quite different from many other parts of Andalusia. So I'm just going to plonk myself down on the bench here by this fountain and these huge cactuses. I want to talk about Níjar. Now, I said we stopped off in the little village of Níjar earlier today. And uh, the municipality of Níjar is actually one of the largest of all of Spain, which stretches from the Sierra Alamilla right across to Cabo de Gata. In a straight line, the distance measures about 25 kilometres. And the charming little village is actually situated at the foot of the Alamilla mountain range. Walking around the village, you really get a flavour of its Moorish Arabic origins, a labyrinthine maze of narrow streets. I always use this uh, term, whitewashed buildings, whitewashed townhouses, but it's true. And it is like a little oasis. And you find a lot of these little villages around Almeria and in the Cabo de Gata, are like little oases in the middle of this barren, mountainous uh, landscape. And I suppose this is a good point to talk about the Cabo de Gata Níjar Natural Park or National Park. In 1987, the Cabo de Gata Níjar was declared a natural land area and sea park uh, with its marine strip of 12,000 hectares. In fact, it's the largest protected sea and land area and one with the most ecological relevance in the whole of the Western European Mediterranean. The area contains the only mountains of volcanic origin on the entire peninsula of Spain and Portugal. The coastal strip has dunes, salt flats. This is also a well-known place for snorkeling as well and diving. So as I said, it's one of the largest municipalities in Spain. In fact, it's the fourth largest municipality in Spain. And its existence dates back to around the 9th century. Ibn al-Jatib spoke of the white land of this area, which gives an idea of the tradition in earthenware handicraft. And it's true. Walking around the village of Nihar and other villages around the Cabo de Gata, you will find lots and lots of little shops selling pottery. The typical Spanish, Moorish-influenced designs of bright geometric patterns, bright colours. And in fact, it was the Phoenicians who founded a temple in the Cabo de Gata, which they called Agatas Promontory, the Promontorio de las Agatas, in honour of one of their goddesses. The Romans also established salt factories, and they worked the mines of Rodalquilar. Rodalquilar is another stop-off we made yesterday, which is beautiful, again, little village oasis. I would sort of describe it as a laid-back hippie vibe, a little bit of a hippie community, lots of artists. When we were there walking through really just one main street of the village, uh, each townhouse with its little open patio in front of the house uh, were displaying lots of modern works of art. But anyway, during the Al-Andalus period, Nija was of little importance as it was close to the enclave of Pechina. But it did gain more prominence when castles and the defensive watchtowers that I mentioned were built. After the Moorish revolts in 1568 and their expulsion in 1570, Nija was left deserted and isolated until the 18th century. And in the 17th century, it was a zone of frequent attacks from Berbers and pirates. This is an ongoing theme in this part of Spain. The coastal defence ruling was proclaimed by Carlos III and castles and defence zones were constructed which allowed the settling of centres of population which were dedicated principally to shepherding and dry land crops. The 19th century for Níjar was the beginning of the working of the mines and at the beginning of the century it had 14,000 inhabitants the mining of lead lasted until 1930 and then gold mines took over and the gold mines declined in the 1960s. Nowadays, the principal activity is traditional agriculture, greenhouse farming and tourism. Now, it's important to mention these vast complexes, vast valleys, in fact, that which, which we've seen driving around Cabo de Gata vast complexes of plastic greenhouses, which is very interesting in terms of the sheer scale of production of fruit and vegetables, um, but also has quite a dark side to it as well, which I will talk about 
uh, in more detail a little bit later in the episode. Stone figures in the area indicate that a human presence in Nihar dates back as far as the Mesolithic period, some 10,000 years ago. In the district of Baranquete, there's a necropolis dating back to 2330 BC. And also worth mentioning are the formation of large rocks and volcanic lava flows on the coast of Nihar, especially in the area of the Ensenada de Monsul. And Monsul is one of these small, rugged, little wild beaches of the Cabo de Gata. And it was the accessibility of the Mediterranean port of Cabo de Gata that encouraged Phoenician occupation around the 6th and 8th centuries BC. And Publio Cornelio Escipion initiated the conquest of Hispania from Ampurias in 2018 BC, which goes some way towards explaining how Roman culture came to the Iberian Peninsula. There's an abundance of remains from this period, including hydraulic construction, roads and burial sites as well. And in the first stages of Roman domination, the main interests in Nija were the gold mining of the Roralquila and the salt marshes, and of course, ample fishing opportunities. So you now join me on Almeria's Playa de los Muertos, Beach of the Dead. I'll talk about why it's called that in a second. Beautiful beach, about a kilometre long, and you have this uh, very pleasant walk down through a narrow, shallow gorge from a, a parking area down to the beach through some dunes and long grasses. It takes you out to this uh, pebbly beach. Now, of all the beaches we've been to on this trip, uh, I've got to say, the sea here is, uh, bueno, el agua está muy brava aquí. Pretty choppy waters, big waves. But I guess the most striking thing about La Playa de los Muertos is the little cove to the right-hand side of the beach, which has this big rock sticking out of the water and the beach, just where the sand hits the water. It looks like a big tooth biting into the sand. And then you have a little cove, a little cave, and a more secluded part of the beach. the beach a couple of kilometers along the coast from Carboneras and the next beach along is Agua Amarga and this virgin beach Playa de los Muertos tends to top the rankings the best beaches in Spain in 2017 the Spanish newspaper Vente Minutos considered it one of the most beautiful beaches in Spain and and also in 2019, the British newspaper, The Guardian, placed it among the 40 most remarkable beaches of the entire European continent. Well, yes, it's a beautiful beach, but I don't know if I would say it's a little bit overrated. Everyone talks about Playa de los Muertos, saying it's the, the must-visit beach in Almeria. It's actually quite a, a pebbly beach. It's a fine pebble beach, so we're not talking fine sand. Um, but I guess the, the topography, the caves, this rock make it quite a photogenic beach where the water is very uh, choppy here. Anyway, why is it called the Beach of the Dead? So it takes its shady name um, from the frequency with which historically the corpses of victims of shipwrecks washed up on this beach. Um, apparently going out to sea from where we are now, converge two strong currents. Uh, and so for that reason, lots of dead sailors ended up getting washed up on this beach. Um, I would say it's worth a visit, definitely, for a day. Um, you have to park, as I said, up at the top of the cliff. It's about a 20, 25 minute uh, walk down a pretty rocky path. My advice is if you come to Playa de los Muertos, is travel light. I wouldn't advise carrying loads of heavy cool boxes and umbrellas and, 
and sunbeds. I would travel light, just bring a towel and a small bag with your food and water in. So another day, another beach. Right now you join me on El Playazo Rodalquilar, also known as Rodalquilar de Cabo de Gata. I think this has probably been my favorite beach of our trip, actually. And the beach is kind of like a horseshoe shaped, I guess. It's quite tightly enclosed on four sides with a backdrop of golden arid hills. And when you're down on the beach, it kind of has this feeling of, um, I don't know, like an amphitheatre, I suppose. Sheltered by these, uh, well, I guess they're small mountains. Behind the beach, you have a large, flat, sandy, grassy area, which doubles up as a car park. I have to say, you know, we're here in August. These little beaches do get quite busy. Um, sometimes it's quite difficult to find a, a, a place to park behind the beach. And these are wild beaches. These are natural beaches. And there are no facilities. There's no bars behind the beach. There are no restaurants. There are no toilets, anything like that. You've got to bring everything that you need. And a couple of interesting points about the beach here at Rodalquilar is that as you drive along the small road to the beach, you see the ruins of a stone tower called Alumbres. And this was actually a former defensive tower which was built in the 16th century. And it's actually the oldest building in all of the Cabo de Gata nature reserve. And well, it served to protect the people here of attacks by pirates. So again, this recurring theme of pirates coming to Almeria, raiding the coast because of the mining operations here. And the Torre de las Alumbres was in a strategic position between the mines in the mountainsides behind us and, of course, the beach, where boats would come and transport the various minerals and metals out around the coast of Spain to other ports around the Spanish coastline and further afield into the Mediterranean. So the tower was built along this route between the beach and the mountains to protect the transportation of all of these valuables. Now, when you're stood on the beach like I am now, looking out to sea, to the left-hand side of the beach, up on a small, which looks like fossilized sand cliff, I suppose, is the Castillo de San Ramon. Again, this is a former defensive bastion which was built later in the 18th century and part of a battery of four guns, again, defending the coastline of Almeria from pirates. Uh, the writer Carmen de Burgos, a writer who was born in Rodalquilar in 1867, had this to say about Rodalquilar. She said, Rodalquilar forms a semicircle of tiled and verdant earth with something of the appearance of an amphitheater. The rocky mountains raise their walls as if they wanted to shelter him and defend him from the vulgarity of civilized life, lulling him to sleep in their steep stone breasts. Only in the east had its Roman circus wall collapsed and because of the rift, the waters prolonged the blue of the sky and stretched the horizon towards the Algerian border coast as if in their continuous beating, they had undermined and sunk its wall. There you go, that's Carmen de Burgos, uh, born here. I've liked this beach particularly because it's sandy, the water's really clear. In fact, well, really the waters in all of the beaches along this part of uh, Almeria's coast are very crystalline and turquoise and clear and very clean uh, from my experience on this trip, very clean indeed. What I've loved about this beach here particularly is that it's very shallow as you walk into the sea. Uh, you can walk out probably a good 20 or 30 meters into the sea and the water only comes up to your, I don't know, your chest. So it's ideal for swimming and it would be ideal for children as well. And the other good thing about it, if you're like me and not a big fan of freezing cold water, <laughs> because of its shallow depth so far out into the sea, uh, the water is incredibly warm. Um, I think this is the only beach on the trip where I spent nearly all day long in the water. <laughs> So 
So there you go. There's a little bit of sound strolling along uh, some of those beaches. I wanted to talk now about Almeria City. Now, the day that we went to Almeria City was very hot. I was a bit tired and uh, I didn't record anything while I was there, but I made lots of notes uh, walking around. So I really wanted to talk a bit about the history of the city, which is interesting, and uh, my thoughts on the city as well. And I'm going to run us through uh, some of the key sites that I think you definitely should see on a visit to Almeria City. I think the first thing I would say, I wouldn't necessarily make a huge effort to go to Almeria City, if I'm honest. I quite liked it, but it didn't blow me away. It kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, the kind of outskirts of Valencia City. It's big boulevards with quite modern buildings and tower blocks. Reminded me a little bit of uh, Murcia City. The historic centre is quite small. Um, it does have its own uh, Ramblas. So if you think of Las Ramblas in Barcelona, it's got its own version of Las Ramblas, which is like a palm tree lined uh, wide avenue that runs from the kind of top of the city down the hill towards the port, which is quite attractive. It does have a few little gems, which I would uh, say that if you do go there are certainly worth visiting. Let's first look at a bit of the history of uh, Almeria City. Well, the population, uh, I have to say, is around 200,000. So it's a good size city. The origin of Almeria is actually connected to the 9th century establishment of the so-called Republic of Pechina or Bayana, uh, a few kilometres to the north of where the city is today. The settlement of current-day Almeria initially developed as a humble trading port of Pechina, known as Almeria Bayana, as I mentioned earlier. So Pechina was the town up in the hill away from the sea and its trading point down there on the coast is where modern day Almeria is located. So Pechina and its uh, maritime port experienced uh, <laughs> different fortunes over the centuries and while the former progressively depopulated, Pechina depopulated, the latter uh, became the base for the Caliphal navy after 933 during the rule of Abd ar-Rahman III. Furthermore, in 955, Abd ar-Rahman III decided to erect walls around the city and a silk industry consisting of hundreds of looms and feeding itself from the mulberry trees planted around the Almeria region uh, fostered Almeria's economy at the beginning. Almeria also became an important uh, slave trade hub during the Caliphal period. I think the most notable site that uh, you will see in the city of Almeria is the Alcazaba. This is the Moorish citadel up on the hill behind the city today. It's a beautiful golden coloured fortress that just glows in the sunshine and you can really kind of see it from any part of the city. Uh, and in fact, it's the biggest of all the citadels built by the Arabs in Spain. And the hill where it stands is called the Hill of San Cristobal. The fortress was once used as uh, a lighthouse and as I said earlier, a surveillance point and Caliph Abd al-Rahman III commissioned the construction of this military fortress in 955 on, uh, as I said, the site of the ancient port city of Pechina up there in the hill. The Alcazaba provided not only with walls and towers, but also with squares and houses. There was a mosque inside and it was also the seat at that time of the local government. From an architectural point of view, what makes this building so interesting in comparison with other Moorish peninsula fortresses is that it was not actually a fortified palace. In fact, it was only built really uh, to serve military purposes. The stronghold uh, provided the foundations for a city that would become the most important port city of Spain at the time, opening up trade with all corners of the Mediterranean, including North Africa, under the Caliph of Cordoba. Much, much later, the Catholic monarchs decided to build a castle on the highest part of the Alcazaba, and uh, they also built a chapel, which is called the Ermita de San Juan, on the site of the former mosque. In 1522, the city was severely shaken and severely damaged by an earthquake, and much of the Alcazaba and the surrounding area was uh, destroyed and basically left untouched, really, 
for hundreds of years. And I'll talk a bit about that uh, in a minute. Uh, another one of my favourite locations in the city is the city's cathedral, which is called the Catedral de la Encarnación de Almería. The Cathedral of the Incarnation of Almería stands in, dominates this very picturesque square. There's this uh, legion of lush towering palm trees that uh, are scattered across the square and uh, they do make a beautiful contrast with the kind of okra coloured walls of the cathedral. Now the cathedral is um, unique because it's a cathedral fortress uh, from the 17th century, uh, Gothic construction with uh, Renaissance facades. The construction began in 1524 uh, after the earthquake, which I just mentioned, uh, destroyed the first in 1522, uh, which was located in the Medina above the Great Mosque up there uh, in the Alcazaba. Um, its main characteristic is its, uh, yes, is that of being a cathedral and a fortress because it was built both uh, for worship and as a defence against the attacks carried out on the city by pirates. And in fact, it's Spain's only fortified cathedral dating uh, from this century. You can tell this when you look up at the cathedral on its main facade. Uh, there's the use of large buttresses and towers in its corners, massive walls. Also has ramparts and artillery holes and uh, these corner towers, which, uh, yeah, it looks more like they should belong on a castle. Uh, and indeed, these, these towers once held cannons. I think for me, my favourite part of Almeria City was the neighbourhood called Almedina, which is really at the foot of the Alcazaba. You kind of walk through the uh, historic centre uh, as you climb up the hill and you're uh, faced with this beautiful network of crisscross streets, beautiful, colourful townhouses. And this was really the oldest neighbourhood in Almeria. And this area in the 16th century would have been a maze of Moorish humble houses and souks. And, uh, well, this area suffered centuries of neglect, really. It wasn't until the 19th century that the old destroyed walls around there uh, were, were, were cleared away and life began to flow again. And while now the Almedina neighbourhood has a, a 19th century look about it, these beautiful, uh, slightly dilapidated, a little bit run down, some of them colourful townhouses of, of one floor with just one door and one window, all painted in different pastel colours, the paint's peeling off, they've got these old bars on the window, old chairs uh, left in the street outside the front doors, <laughs> reminded me almost immediately of wandering around this neighbourhood. Uh, it transported me to the back streets of uh, Havana in Cuba. The style of the architecture, the kind of decadence, the slightly down at heel feel to the neighborhood very reminiscent for me of uh, Havana and absolutely charming and uh, you can see parts of the Almadina neighborhood are being um, improved um, I hate to say gentrified I guess so there are some little hotels hostels Airbnbs there uh, and there are also interestingly some teterias these little tea rooms serving the Arab or Moroccan style uh, mint tea that's poured from from the uh, metal jug. You really get the sense of the Moorish history as you wander around uh, this part of the city. And when you're up there and you look out across Almeria, you're greeted with this fantastic view across the city of Almeria, all the way down to the sea and down to the port. And it's this real patchwork of really colorful buildings. And uh, I was showing actually some photos to some of my friends of this view. And they said, oh my word, it really, looks to me, if I didn't know it was Almeria, I would have said this was a, a neighbourhood of Oran or, 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 or a neighbourhood on the outskirts of Cairo. It certainly has this feel of a, of a North African city when you're up there in the Almedina neighbourhood looking out across towards the sea. The other highlight for me in Almeria city was something that's very uh, unusual, um, which is this iron railway pier. It's actually called 
El Cable Inglés, the English Pier, was built in 1904. And if you're down by the port, well, you can't miss it. It's this ginormous steel structure, and it is basically a pier. So really, what it is is a raised railway line which connects. To this pier, which runs out into the sea,、uh, it's about 17 meters high, so it's pretty big, and it runs out, I think, about 100 meters into the sea. And the railway track runs about a kilometer back inland towards the train station. And what it is is an ancient loading pier that was used in the 20th century, used particularly for the transfer of iron ore, copper. And silver,、uh, which were mined and produced by the British and French-run mines up in Granada, and、uh, were transported down there to the cargo ships in the port of Almeria. Now the pier actually remained operational until 1973, and、uh, they decided instead of knocking it down to keep it、uh, as a symbol of Spain's industrial heritage. And it's、uh, quite unexpected. It crosses over. Uh, the city beach, and it's actually said that the design of the Cable Inglés used Gustave Eiffel of Eiffel Tower fame used his techniques of iron pillars with sleepers to provide、uh, the necessary support to the structure. So、uh, it has like an aqueduct-like appearance. So the next stop, you join me in Mojaca. Now Mojaca is about 90 kilometers from Almeria, capital. Towards the north, it's located at the end of the Sierra Cabrera, and it's one of those Spanish villages、um, which has been officially designated one of the most beautiful villages in Spain. This network of villages、uh, where they are given this prize, and you'll often see signs on the entrance to these villages saying that it's considered one of the most beautiful villages. In Spain, quintessentially Andalusian, and I would say it's probably an essential visit if you're down in the province of Almeria. Town's actually divided into two、uh, differentiated urban centres. You've got Mojaca Pueblo, where I'm talking to you from now, which is up on the hill, and then about two kilometres downhill, you've got Mojaca Playa, which is more of the、uh, beach resort, less historic. And again, the old story: Why was it built up here? Well, to help defend itself and its citizens against these attacks from the sea. So, just on the edge of Mojaca, on one of the roads that winds around the village, is the Mariquita La Posa, and this is a cave, small cave. Which you can see from the road, and this cave is known to locals as, as I said, Mariquita La Posa's cave, or in English, the cave of the Little Maria. According to legend, here in this cave dwells the town's guardian spirit. As folklore would have it, in days gone by, the local people suffered from a deadly plague of epidemic proportion, apparently. And the village beauty, a young woman of incalculable charms named Maria, agreed to marry an aged sorcerer, a practitioner of alchemy and the dark arts, who resided in this cave to save her beloved people. In exchange, the wizard promised he would use his mystical power. To save the townspeople, once the aged sorcerer was married to the beautiful young maiden, he delayed fulfilling his prenuptial promise, thinking that the matrimonial bliss would come to an end once his part of the contract had been fulfilled, and the village was no longer in danger. The lovely young bride Maria, in order to save her people, decided to take independent action. While the sorcerer slept, apparently Maria took the jar containing the life-saving potion. She then quietly snuck from the cave. And shared the jar's contents with the people of the village. Returning to the sorcerer's cave and hoping to fool the sorcerer, she refilled the now empty jar with other potions of mystical powers. In her nervous, fear-fueled haste and dreading the sorcerer might awaken, she spilled a few drops from the jar on herself, burning a hole into her hand and triggering a spell. Since that ill-fated moment, neither Maria. Nor the sorcerer have been seen again, and according to the local legend, both Maria and the sorcerer have remained in the cave under the magic spell. And to honour the memory of the Marquita La Posa, when local people walk past the cave, they used to sing, "Come out, come out of the cave, Marquita La Posa, the one with a hole in her hand." A little bit of Mojácar folklore for you there.
So I'm now in Mojaca's Plaza Nueva. This is the uh, central hub of the village where all of the Mojaqueros meet up, surrounded by uh, a few little bars and terraces. Everything is whitewashed <laughs> in the town of Mojaca. Townhouses, little shops, hotels. An unhappy baby, of course, in the background. And the great thing about the uh, square, the Plaza Nueva, is on one side of the square, you go up some grey marble steps to a fantastic viewpoint, observation point, a wide railinged balcony with an outdoor stage space. It also looks like they use it to set up uh, concerts. But from this viewpoint, we can see the great valley surrounded by the Sierras of Cabrera, Bedar and Almagrera. And we can also see the old, uh, the Aguas riverbed and flows into the lagoon. And looking out across this brown, almost cratered landscape, speckled with these mini mountains and this vast expanse of brown, beige, arid valley lays out before you. A few little houses and smaller pueblos scattered through the valley. So as you wander down past Calle Irene, you come across a restaurant terraza. This is quite unusual because it's... uh, it's a kind of porticoed square with these marble columns. And apparently, uh, this square was an ancient Arab necropolis since human remains have been found in it, orientated or facing towards Mecca. And in the corner of the little square there is a reproduction of one of the scenes of the Reconquest. Walking past the Ayuntamiento of uh, Mojaca, which is just on uh, Calle Correos, and a beautiful marble square of what looks like a huge big banyan tree right in the centre of the square. A few people out there eating, and this is one of your typical Pueblo Blancos that you, uh, that you find scattered all around Andalusia. Absolutely beautiful labyrinth of whitewashed streets here all of the uh, houses have got their traditional geranium pots on the walls and plants as you can probably hear it's quite breezy up here on the hill we are about 200 meters above sea level up in the village of Mojaca so it is lunchtime in Mojaca and you can hear a few people talking quite loudly, eating their lunch. I'm standing under a bristling fig tree. There are lots of fig trees. Beautiful scent that the leaves give off. The figs aren't quite ripe yet. As I've walked around Mojacar, I have noticed that on many doorways, you see this little symbol. Some of them are tiled, some of them are metal, some of them are made of wood. Symbol of a, a human figure with a kind of circle, almost like a halo over its head. It's like the two arms are holding up uh, a halo over its head. And this is actually called an Indalo, a Mohakar man. It's a magical totem which is said to bring protection and good luck. And in the past it was painted onto the fronts of the houses once the whitewash had dried uh, in the belief that it kept away the evil eye and bad spirits and protected those within the house from storms coming in from the sea. And in fact, the figure has been interpreted as a man holding a rainbow above his head between his outstretched arms. Now, the original totem is thought to be around four and a half thousand years old, and the earliest known example appears in one of the prehistoric paintings in a cave in Belef Blanco. Now you see these little Indalo totems as key rings in all of the little touristy shops and you still see them today on the doors of the houses around Mojaca. So it's a kind of good luck symbol, I guess, uh, which is especially common in Almeria and here in Mojaca. So just before 
before we wind up this episode, I thought it was really important to talk about the Mar de Plástico um, for a couple of reasons, really. I mean, the uh, sea of plastic, these huge expanses of greenhouses all across the province of Almeria that sprawl across the kind of desert-like landscape. Uh, you can't miss them. And, and some of these greenhouse complexes are absolutely vast, are whole valleys covered in these white, grey-coloured plastic greenhouses uh, which are used to intensively grow all sorts of fruits and vegetables. And in fact, through these uh, greenhouses, which are owned by a mix of small individual farmers and also larger multinational uh, companies, in terms of the scale of production, we're talking about three and a half million tons of fruit and vegetables every year produced in uh, greenhouses which cover more than 310 square kilometers. What is interesting is that alongside uh, these greenhouses, little improvised villages have kind of popped up uh, very kind of basic looking houses. In some cases, uh, houses just built out of metal and wood. I think what uh, they might call in Spain chabolas, these uh, makeshift homes. And who are they built by or who are they built for? Well, the huge number of immigrants who uh, come across from North Africa, notably from Morocco, to work in these greenhouses. Almeria province is one of the key gateways to Europe for many African migrants. And according to the uh, local authorities, uh, last year, more than 400 boats with a total of around 12,000 migrants arrived in Almeria uh, looking for work in these greenhouses. Now, the problem is that uh, the uh, Spanish labour law is very rarely respected by these greenhouse owners because many of these uh, people who come to harvest the fruit and vegetables, in some cases legal and in many cases illegal. And so therefore the labour laws are not respected. Often workers do not have any contracts or any social security and are paid very low wages, in some cases between 30 and 40 euros a day, which is uh, at least 15 euros below the minimum wage. And they're exposed to excruciating conditions inside these greenhouses uh, where temperatures reach uh, 50 degrees. There have been incidences of exposure to pesticides and chemicals. And in fact, there have been numerous stories over the years of, of uh, workers dying inside these greenhouses. According to the local authorities in Almeria, 30 of the migrant workers are actually undocumented and there have been numerous crackdowns on farmers who hire workers illegally as well over the last couple of years and uh, farmers can be fined up to €6,000 uh, for each worker that they employ illegally. So you might ask, well, you know, Almeria has a, a very warm, sunny climate. Why do they need to use uh, greenhouses to grow uh, fresh produce? Well, the use of plastic greenhouses intensifies the heat, uh, maintains humidity and it allows fruit and vegetables to be harvested one month earlier than if they were in an open field. And so effectively what they can do is double or triple the number of harvests in a given year. And all of the produce which is grown in these greenhouses in Almeria, and they also do exist across the border in Murcia as well, is exported predominantly in Europe, but particularly to Northern Europe. Uh, the UK, Germany, Holland and Scandinavia. It is also, of course, sold uh, across Spain as well. One of the other problems is uh, the level of pollution which has been caused by these greenhouses, uh, pollution of groundwater through the use of fertilisers and pesticides, and apparently some five 1,200 tonnes of chemical waste is dumped into the area every year. So there you go. It's an impressive sight, something quite unusual to see, something that I've never seen before anywhere else around Spain or Europe, in fact. So I will leave it there for this episode. Sorry to end on a bit of a downer. My takeaways would be this. Almeria City, unless you're very interested in uh, Moorish uh, citadels, the Alcazaba, I would possibly wouldn't make it a 
big priority. I would say really this part of Spain is about the beautiful wild beaches, which are usually much quieter than beaches that you'll find along other coasts of Spain. The landscape is very interesting. I mean, if you're looking for lush green hillsides, you're not going to really find that in Almeria. So I'll leave it there. Thank you for listening to this episode. For anyone who's planning a trip in the future to Almeria, um, I hope there's some useful information in the episode that you can take away. So I'll be back very soon. I'm hoping next week with a brand new episode of the When in Spain podcast. Thank you for listening. Go and check out the When in Spain Instagram account. The handle is When in Spain One. You'll find lots of photos on there. I will go and put some more as well from across Almeria. You can also find When in Spain on Facebook with an active When in Spain Facebook community on there. And if you'd like to get in touch with any suggestions or ideas for future episodes, please do. You can email Email me directly at wheninspain1 at outlook.com. Okay, I look forward to speaking to you very soon. Until then, I bid you all hasta luego.